lies, deceit, adultery, murder, teen sex, drugs, abortion by proxy, incest by proxy, illegitimate children, coded gay characters. Sounds like it's time for episode 111 of Pop Art, the podcast where we find the pop culture and art and the art and pop culture. It's the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie foreign side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your, we were just playing a game called Photography, you turn off the lights and see what develops, host Howard Kasner. Today, I am happy to welcome as my guest, attorney by day, murder mystery host by night, and a podcaster, Sean Hobrick, who has chosen as his film, Ang Lee's Dissection of Suburban Life in 1970s Connecticut, The Ice Storm, while I have chosen Mark Robson's dissection of small-town New England life in the 1950s, Peyton Place, both so proper looks at small town. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. So to begin, Sean, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? My favorite movies are Jaws and The Godfather. I know that's what every middle-aged male says, but those are my favorite movies. However, I'll watch anything. I'll buy anything on DVD. Yeah, I'm an attorney by day and murder mystery host by night. If that sounds fascinating, that's great, but I'm really tired all the time. (laughs) I could imagine, especially with the attorney and then doing other things on top of it. Yeah, and podcasts, too. Uh, Right. So... Well, with that, let's get to your selection, and that is The Ice Storm. First, some information about the film. The Ice Storm is an American drama released in 1997. It is directed by Ang Lee and written by James Shamus, based on the 1994 novel of the same name, written by Rick Moody. It stars Kevin Klein, Joan Allen, Christina Ricci, Toby Maguire, Jamie Sheridan, Sigourney Weaver, Elijah Wood, Adam Hanbird, Henry Cerny, Michael Cumstey, David Crumholtz, Kate Burton, Katie Holmes, Glenn Fitzgerald, Allison Janney, and Larry Pine. A lot of big names. Yeah. It's 1973, and there is trouble in paradise as two families in an affluent suburb in Connecticut experiment with the sexual revolution. Adultery, teen sexual experimentation, key parties, and drugs are disrupting the family units until an ice storm arrives during Thanksgiving holiday to add to the disruption and eventually resolve the issues facing the characters. Before beginning talking about the film proper, let's start off by talking about a sort of subgenre of drama called soap opera. Oh, yes. Soap- Soap opera as a genre began on radio and continued on to television. It's characterized by such elements as melodrama, ensemble cast, and sentimentality. They're called soap operas because the first ones were sponsored by soap manufacturers. Though technically these two films might not be fully characterized as soaps since they are not serialized for radio or television, they have all the elements of soap. What do you think is the appeal of these sorts of films? If you look at what we're watching on TV today, it's soap operas. Think of soap operas we think of maybe my grandma used to watch All My Children and it was on during the daytime. Now everybody watches soap operas, except they're not videotaped every day. I think it all started probably with The Sopranos and then you went off into 
Breaking Bad, like they became a lot more highbrow. I remember showing someone The Godfather for the first time, and his complaint was, well, they could have just broken that up into 10-episode miniseries, and it would be just, like, you don't understand. You're thinking in that sense. I feel that stories like this, you have an, an even bigger appeal now, especially Peyton Place, than they would maybe 20 years ago. The Ice Storm, I don't think of as a soap opera per se. It's like when you read a book that's in chapters and at the end of a chapter, they'll have a big reveal. The film is set in the 70s. I think that's really important. I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. My parents raised me very, very much like the way that these parents raised their kids. A little bit arm's length will let you do whatever you want to do, but don't do anything weird like set your army men on fire. I think you have a point that the ice storm may not quite fit the definition of soap operas, even though I could see someone continuing the story on mm-hmm. television, making a weekly story mm-hmm. out of it, like they did Peyton Place, mm-hmm. because it was adapted to television. But it is a bit more focused. There's not as many subplots or through lines going on, especially as you'll see in Peyton Place, where there's just a ton of stuff going on in this little yeah. town. Yeah. What I like about soaps is They do run the gamut of emotions and issues. You do get more bang for your buck. And if you're lucky, you get a nice helping of kitchen camp. But it's sometimes like Charles Dickens, though not reaching to his level of artistry by any means. I think there's also an irony here. Soap opera is fantasy. Most people live lives of boredom and quiet desperation. Mm -hmm. But soap operas show how lives like theirs are actually exciting and interesting. We might never want to actually live in Peyton Place or the suburbs of Connecticut, but at least their lives aren't boring. Even though it deals with people in conflicts that hit close to home, and we are always gossiping about our friends and wonder what's going on, Mm -hmm. it is fantasy. It's not reality. It's removed from reality. They're both fantasy and reality at the same time. We would both like to live in a soap opera, while at the same time, we want to keep it at a distance. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You, You were talking about how daytime soaps have gone out of favor, and that is true. I think there's still one or two left, but they were replaced by talk shows and news, which are now the popular daytime shows both of which have their own fantasy elements as well. But they then moved to nighttime with such shows as Dynasty, Dallas, Falcon Crest. You mentioned The Sopranos, Six Feet Under, and even Mad Men. Mm -hmm. And today we have a a myriad of teen dramas like The O.C. and Euphoria. So as a genre, they are still quite popular. (laughs) Why did you choose this film? First of all, I listened to a couple episodes of your podcast. The first thing that I thought when you invited me on was, okay, it's got to be two movies, two movies that I can just talk about nonstop. And those two movies were, ironically, Clue and Murder by Death. Uh, Uh, It turns uh, out uh, 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 uh. (laughs) I did both of those movies. I put them in for a movie of the month for Lambcast, and they won both times. So I did those in the Lambcast. I was also on a couple other podcasts about Clue. But darn it, you already did it. And then my next knee-jerk reaction was to choose a horror movie. I am a huge horror movie boss. I'm planning another podcast featuring horror movies. But I'm like, you know what? I, I think I better pick something highbrow. I just looked at the DVDs on my shelf, and (laughs) I have a lot, not to brag. I'm like, okay, 
let's choose something that's popular, but more like an art. So I chose the ice storm. There are all sorts of issues and problems, and there's a lot of subtlety in this movie that w- that can be discussed that I think would be fun to talk about. I happen to like the movie a lot, and I really like Ang Lee's movies in general. And also, I had just watched Brokeback Mountain, so I had Ang Lee on the brain. When did you first see the I saw it when it came out in video on DVD, probably. And then I used to have a podcast called A Thousand One Movies, and I did it for that as well. What did you think upon first seeing it? I didn't like it as much as I did the second movie. I think I was too young. I was barely older than the kids in this movie are. I first saw the movie when it came out, but I saw it in the theater because I'm just a little older than you are, to say the least. I'd been impressed by Ang Lee at that point, so I I naturally wanted to see this one. It's not one of my favorite Ang Lees for a few reasons. In many ways, it can't be faulted. It's of consistent quality and extremely well made. But I feel like there's a distance or alienation from the subject matter and time period that prevented me from fully engaging in the film. And we'll discuss this more as we go along. You said that you were of the generation of the 80s. I was of the generation of the 70s. I was in high school Mm. in the 70s. So this was my period. But full disclosure, I am going to be rather critical of this movie such that people might think I hate it. I don't hate it. I am just not convinced it fully succeeds even on its own terms. But again, we'll talk about more of that later. What are some of your favorite scenes? Oh, I would have to say definitely the Thanksgiving dinner when Christina Ricci goes off. A lot of the lines that she says are just so funny. The key party is great because it's suspenseful. And you mentioned the word kitschy. The key party is just so gross and kitschy. I like the scene, even though it's, what's the word I'm looking for? Grinworthy. Grinworthy? Cringeworthy. There you go. Thank you. I also like the performances. I think Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver stick out. Uh, and I, whatever happened to Kevin Klein? He was doing so well. And I think he's probably doing a lot of stage work now. He is, but he still yeah. has movies coming out on a regular basis. And if you watch Bob's Burgers, he's the wealthy owner of the block that okay. Bob has to pay rent to. Okay. So, but he right. does do a lot of stage work. Some of my favorite scenes include when Jim Carver comes home and he sits on the waterbed and it just <laughs> goes sloshing all over the place. Waterbeds are great, but yes, they're not necessarily the best beds to get in and out of. I also like the key party, especially when Janie Carver picks the keys of the young stud, oh, knowing yeah. what she's doing and goes off with him and Ben Hood tries to stop them and falls down drunk. I like the scenes of Mikey Carver checking out the ice storm, one where he jumps up and down on the diving board, and it's very effective when he is electrocuted at the end. You don't see that coming, and no pun intended, it is is shocking. But you know what? That's literally like the nail in the coffin. The director is Ang Lee. You've already said how much you like him. Do you have a favorite film of his, and what do you think of his directing here? His directing here is great. I see something like Life of Pi, and that's a very visual movie. Brokeback Mountain is very visual. You know what? This is visual, too. Not as much as those two movies. But I think it would probably have to be Brokeback Mountain is 
when that movie first came out, it was like, everybody loved it. It's going to win Best Picture. Spoiler, it didn't. Ang Lee won an Oscar for it, though. But it really is a really beautiful movie. And it's about a relationship that is very real. And that's what Ang Lee does so well. These people in this movie, I could totally believe these people. There was nothing about it that seemed a little over the top. Or maybe when Katie Holmes passed out from, what did he give her? I can't remember. Some sort of sleeping pill. Little things like, I don't think he's a priest. I think he's a pastor. Yes, he he's not a pastor. Who seems very gentle as pastors would be. And Joan Allen, she doesn't say anything, but it's kind of implied. Like, you know, I think he might be kind of cute. But when he participates in the key party, it's just like, oh my gosh, he's gross just like us. I was wrong. He does participate in the key party route. He is at first, but Elena Hunter makes him feel guilty, and he takes his keys and that's right. goes home. At the end of the movie, a more cynical person would be like, well, that's what happens when you don't look after your kids. I don't think that's the case. No. He's going out and checking out the storm. You know, He wasn't goofing off or doing anything bad. It was just a horrible freak accident. I've only seen half of Ang Lee's films. My favorite is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Ooh. but... <laughs> I also am a fan of Brokeback Mountain and The Wedding Banquet. And I should mention that The Wedding Banquet was covered by pop art and was paired with Ozu's Late Spring. I think his string flies into areas. He's a masterful visual artist. His movies look great and are technically superior. But he also has this ability to enter a situation or background that he's not a part of and has no history with. Yes. And makes you think that this is actually his background, like he's completely familiar with it. When a filmmaker or any artist tries to enter a world they're not a part of, usually one of two things happens. It's either obvious that the artist is not a part of this world and doesn't get it, or they bring an outsider's view to it and enrich the experience. And I think Lee tends to do the latter. That is interesting. My partner is Asian, part Chinese, part Thai. Sometimes he'll say, okay, don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. So I feel like maybe he's bringing part of that culture to a lot of his movie. Well, this is probably actually where the movie doesn't quite work for me. I never felt that Ang Lee quite got the 70s. And it doesn't quite feel authentic in many ways. As I said, there's a distancing effect here. This has to do with the screenplay by Shamus as well. I think another way to look at it is that in preparing his actors for their roles, Lee let the cast members study stacks of magazine cutouts from the early 1970s. And for me, that's what the movie feels like. Stacks of magazine cutouts without the real emotional background to them. Magazine cutouts are not authentic. They are an idealized and fantasy look at a period. I think I can see what you're saying. I mean, look at their house. They live in a beautiful house. Things that they wear, they do look like they're models walking out of a JPenney or Sears catalog. But I feel that the script still gives them that depth that they need. Sigourney Weaver trying desperately to be a good mother. She doesn't understand the younger son's proclivities for violence and how he likes blowing up his army men. And you know what? A lot of little kids do that. I think it's normal. She just thinks it's a little weird. I think her husband's a little aloof. He has no idea what's going on. I think I'm going to respectfully disagree with that magazine cutout. That's fine. For me, it's postmodernism at its weakest. It Mm. looks borrowed to me without any real authenticity or insight 
brought to it. For example, if you compare it to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where Tarantino mm. borrows and borrows and borrows, but he brings new insight to the time period and makes it something new mm. and immediate. I'm not sure that the ice storm does that. But you've talked some about the ending. How did you feel about Ben Hood finding Mikey Carver dead and that reconciling the Hood family? Horrible. No father, especially the father of a child that young, should live to see their child's death. And I don't think it's going to reconcile the family. I think it's going to tear the family apart and everybody's going to go their separate ways. And if he didn't die, if he continued to live, Toby McGuire moves away and they're bringing up, I think his name is Mike. I don't know if the, the actor's name. Mikey, Elijah Wood. Oh, that's Elijah Wood? Oh yes. my gosh, I feel like an idiot. Spider-Man is in the Hood family. Frodo is in the Carver family. I get those two mixed up sometimes. Yes. If he grew up and lived to be a very old man, I think he would have had a terrible childhood. I think that he would have to deal with a lot of scars. These people aren't capable of raising a healthy child. Ang Lee said, quote, the book moved me at those two points. And he's talking about the climax because the climax was what attracted him to do the book. He said, I knew there was a movie there when he read the climax. But for me, there are two issues. One is sacrifice Mike equal compensation to having the Hood family reconcile. You're right that it's going to destroy the Carver family, and they were probably going to get divorced at some point anyway. But this sort of brings the Hood family together. And I'm going, really, you're going to kill off Mikey just so the Hood family can get back together. But as you said, the ending, I don't think really resolves anything. It's a false ending. None of the essential issues causing the unhappiness and the dysfunctional Hood family have been addressed. It's just sort of a band-aid until they realize again just how unhappy they are. So I'm not sure the movie ever gets to the root of what is alienating them from the world and each other. And in some ways, this ending with Mikey dying is more of a deus ex machina there to resolve the ending, but I'm not convinced that it does. How would you have it end? What would you do differently? That's a good question. I'm not really sure. I don't think I would have gone the way that the author probably wouldn't have gone that way. I wouldn't have had the family reconcile because the problems are still there. Because you can't really just, that event doesn't happen, and then they go on with their lives. That would be ending not with a bang, but with with a whimper. I don't know how I would end it. I would have them as far apart at the end as they are at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Just say, there's no real hope here. Yeah. The screenplay is by James Shamus. He's a frequent collaborator with Ang Lee. He's worked on screenplays for Pushing Hands, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Hulk, Ride with the Devil, Lost Caution, Tiggin Woodstock, and The Ice Storm. And he also produced Brokeback Mountain and other Lee films. He also wrote and directed Indiscretion, which is a very interesting film about a Jewish college student at a mainly Christian college set in the 1940s or in the 1930s. So what do you think of the screenplay? I thought it was fine. I don't think it was the best thing ever. I think it's fascinating that it's based on a book because this is not something that I would read and say, gosh, darn it, I wish somebody would make a book out of this. To be honest, most people said that. It was Shamas who figured out a way to make it into a movie. So you have a point. (laughs) I think there's also the preteen sexuality 
they had to handle that very carefully. You could cross a line there where it becomes downright gross or offensive. They didn't cross that line, although there's a lot of stuff that's implied, specifically Christina Ricci's character. I don't know what she's doing or what she's thinking about it when she's not with boys, but you got to watch her. She's a tricky one, but she just tells it like it is. She is 13 going on 35. I don't know what's going to happen to her after the credits roll either. I'm Seamus is also a producer, and from his list of movies that he has written and or produced, he is what I would call a person with discerning and good taste. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Usually when I would say that, it would, it would be negative, but I don't mean that in a negative way. You look at his list of movies. It's a rather impressive list. But getting back to the distancing, I found as if it was written by someone who had read a lot of John Cheever and John Updike. So everything feels secondhand. Again, it's the downside to most modernism, where a movie comments on its content, but here it can't become its own thing. When postmodernism succeeds, it becomes its own thing, but I'm not sure it did here. But of course, we disagree on that, and that's cool. Mm. Um, I I kind of see what your point is, though. I do understand what you mean, but perhaps it just doesn't bother me. You know. Well, that's often true. If I really like a movie, sometimes the things that might bother other people don't bother me at all, mm-hmm. or I just don't care. The book was first brought to Shamus's attention by his wife, who was a literary scout, and she knew Rick Moody from Columbia University's MFA program. And Shamus said, quote, it's an astonishingly cinematic book, but because of its truly literary qualities, people may have missed its extraordinary cinematic properties. As you said, it's not something that off the top of one's head, they would say, oh, let's make a movie here. From what I understand, the characters are less likable in the book, which is something we will also discuss when we talk about Payton Place. Do you have a favorite performance in the film? I really want to say just Alice and Janie, but that really wouldn't be fair. <laughs> no, it is fair, because she's my pick, too. Oh, really? Okay, she's good. She's a I lot mean, of fun. She's got like eight That's... minutes of screen time, but anything that she's in. When you watch something like All About E with Marilyn Monroe, I know Marilyn Monroe is not a major role in All About Eve, but I remember there's a scene where they're at a party and they're having this conversation around the stairs. My mom paused the movies and she pointed out to me, look at Marilyn Monroe. They're having an entire conversation, five or six other people, and all you can look at on that screen is Marilyn Monroe. And Alice and Janie is a bit like Marilyn Monroe. Every time she walks on screen, you're just drawn to her. And that's true with pretty much every movie that she's in. She has those big eyes and that interesting face, this quirky personality. It's very different from the other characters in the film. Absolutely. That's just Allison Janey. It's like she really brings her own aesthetic to the part. Well, casting is 90% of a movie. I think everyone is pretty solid. They all give a good performance, so I don't think they can really be that faulted. Yeah. But we should talk about two other elements of it that I think are unsung or sung heroes the cinematography by frederick elms and the mm. music by michael dana that's excellent how do you Glad feel you about those i thought both were excellent cinematography really stands out of course in the winterscapes i remember the music being unique 
I really like the music, though, and I like the use of the Native American music. I can't tell you why that was placed there. I'm sure that there's a reason, but the rest of the score that the right. it would have been so easy for them to play some sort of jazzy 70s music or have a 70s soundtrack like they do in Boogie Nights. It's a shortcut. It's a low-hanging fruit. I want to make it feel like it's the late 80s, so I'm going to play Toy Soldiers. There's something about this movie that I feel like if they did that, it would be slathering on, frosting on a cake with a paint roller. And I think that you would lose some of the subtleness of the directing. I agree with you about both of these Frederick Elms works with a number of independent filmmakers, including David Lynch, Jim Jarmusch, Ang Lee. He may turn out to be one of the major cinematographers of this time period. Here he does some nice framing and gives it a strong mood or darkness, solemnity, which we'll see will be a great contrast to Pain Place with its wide vistas, colorful season changes. <laughs> um, yes. And then Michael Dana, you were talking about the Native American, and he's a pioneer of combining non-Western sound sources with oh, orchestral sweet. electronic minimalism in oh. film. And he's also worked with a number of independent filmmakers like Atomigoyen, Deepa Mehta, Terry Gilliam, James Mangold, Mirenir. And he earned two Academy Award nominations for Life of Pi for Best Original Score and for the song Pi's Lullaby. That's right. I'm reminded of The Sweet Hereafter because you mentioned Adam Egoyen, minimalist yet memorable. Andrew Johnston, writing in the in Time Out New York, stated, quote, the 1970s have long been written off a goofy embarrassment to our country, quite possibly because the actual details of the decade are too painful for us to remember, no matter how old or young we were at the time. Ang Lee's film of Rick Moody's novel cuts through the kitsch to explore the emotional black hole at the heart of the period. And Janet Maslin of the New York Times wrote, beautifully acted as it is, the ice storm still elects to keep its characters and their emotions at a distance. They remain as hidden from the viewer as they are from one another, which is an essential part of the film's disturbing power. With that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost $18 million to make and made $8 million at the box office. So it was a flop, let us mm-hmm. say. Ashamus received the Cannes Film Festival Award for Best Screenplay, and Sigourney Weaver won the BAFTA Award for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Oh, wow. The real ice storm portrayed in the film happened mm. December 16th through the 17th in 1973 and was named Felix. This is the film debut of both Katie Holmes and Sarah Thompson. The Fantastic Four comic Paul Hood read on the train is issue 141 titled The End of the Fantastic Four. However, it has a December 1973 cover date and went on sale in September. In no case is it factually correct to say that it was published in November. And another anachronism, though we'll get a lot more in Pain Place, In an early scene, Wendy and Paul talk about their parents, calling them parental units. (laughs) This phrase became popular when it was used for the Conehead sketches on Saturday Night Live. Uh, But Saturday Night Live premiered in 1975, two years later, and the Coneheads didn't appear until 1977. Wow, that's interesting. Although the exterior of the railway car shows the Penn Central logo, the interior of the car bears the Metropolitan Transit Authority logo. And downed power lines do not flail about like they do in the movie. Mm. 
well, this movie is flawed. It's garbage. I'm throwing away my DVD right now. <laughs> oh, if you want to see about inaccuracies, wait till we get to Pain Place. It's just riddled with anachronisms and things like that, where it's almost fun. Speaking of which, let's get to my selection, and that is Baton Place. However, first we're going to take a moment and listen to a promo from a fellow podcaster. And while we are doing that, take this time to like, follow, or comment on the post. Hey, I'm Aaron. And I'm Abe. And together, we host Out Out Now now with with Aaron Aaron and Abe. Abe. Hey, we pulled that up. Hey. (laughs) This is a weekly review show, right? We talk about movies on a weekly basis. And other things. Yeah, we have uh, commentary tracks, we, we have lots of guests. A lot of bonus episodes, a lot of game talk, a lot of sports talk. Yeah, some of sports talk factors in there, along with Simpsons references for whatever reason. So give us a listen. We're everywhere podcasts are found. Yeah, they're everywhere, right? Everywhere. Out now, there and Abe. Coming live. Sometimes? I think it's in in there. (laughs) I think I I can edit that together. Welcome back. First, some information about the film. Peyton Place is an American drama released in 1957. It was directed by Mark Robson and written by John Michael Hayes, based on the bestseller of the same name by Grace Metalius, written a year earlier. It stars Lana Turner, Diane Varsi, Hope Lang, Lee Phillips, Arthur Kennedy, Lloyd Nolan, Russ Tamblin, Terry Moore, David Nelson, Barry Coe, Betty Field, Mildred Denick, Leon Ames, Lauren Green, Stats Cotsworth, Peg Hillius, and Aaron O'Brien Moore. Taking place from spring 1941 to spring 1943, the story follows the lives, loves, and scandals in the small New England town of Peyton Place, as seen through the eyes of young Allison McKenzie, an aspiring writer. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? How do you think they work together? And what are some similarities and differences? I think we already pointed out earlier that while this is truly a soap opera, the ice storm, though it has soap opera elements, might not quite be considered a soap opera. You know what, though? Peyton Place is the most soap opera-ish of all the soap opera movies I've ever seen. Yes. This is... I had no idea. I think the pairing of the two films is apt because I'll be frank, I had doubts at first because I just knew Peyton Place as a TV. And I've never seen it, by the way, TV show based off of some movie. So when you said, "Okay, the movie. okay, All right. Yeah, this is almost three hours long. How am I going to fit this into my bit? But it was great. It's so lascivious the script is so subtle when it needs to be it's not so subtle in shocking moments like oh i'll just go out and be some man's mistress like you did and then she gets slapped or when and i forget the boy's name the one that's the son of the guy that owns the factory rod um he says or i can just be like you i can't remember exactly what he says i think i literally went (gasps) and clutched the pearls when he said that (laughs) and this is a movie that came out in 1957 i hate when people say I don't like old movies. I don't like black and white movies. This isn't black and white, but it's an old movie from 1957. I'm not going to watch that. Whatever, whatever. Story is a story. It doesn't matter when it was made. It depends on how it was told. It went down smooth. I really liked this movie, and I'm really glad that you picked it. Really liked the characters. I mean, it brought up everything. 
you said it all in the beginning. Sex, suicide, incest, sort of, abortion, murder. And the word abortion is never said in the movie. Well, it's Uh, a miscarriage in the movie. It's a miscarriage, yeah. We'll talk more about the differences between the book and the movie. Who directed this one again? Mark Robson. I looked up his work. He did not do anything that I recognize. But I'm a little bit lacking in some of my 1940s and 50s Hollywood stuff. I would say that the performances in something like The Ice Storm are stronger. I thought Lana I can Turner, accept that. Yeah, I thought Lana Turner was good, but the actress who played Allison what did great on me a little tiny bit at times, especially in her vo- the voiceover scenes. I did not like those voiceover scenes. It was a little bit too Norman Rockwell for me. But that was the point. You know, this is Norman Rockwell when you drive through the town, but really it's John Waters' movie. <laughs> not that I think bad. that's actually an interesting way of looking at it. Norman Rockwell on the surface, John Waters underneath. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I first saw it on television in the 1960s. And you're right, it's a long film. And since commercials made it even longer, it was split <laughs> over two nights. Mm-hmm. The first time I saw it, it was on a black and white TV, and pan and scan was used since it was filmed widescreen. But in spite of that, I find it incredibly entertaining. Mm -hmm. I had the same reaction many critics had. It's not so much that it got done with so much of the salaciousness intact, more or less, but they took a book that was not well-received critically and somehow made a good movie out of it. I'm not saying it's a great movie, but they made a good movie out of it. It's well done and it's entertaining. It's beautiful to look at. There's some strong acting and it's moving at times. And as we'll talk about more later, it has its place in film history when it came to helping bring down the Hays Code. Yes, okay. Hear about when movies like Star Wars or Psycho come out. No, it was the scariest movie ever and people were vomiting in the aisles watching The Exorcist, I could see this shocking a lot of people. I could see them being like, there's no way I'm taking my son or my daughter to see this movie. They will not be allowed to see it. It's filth. They would only talk about it at dinner parties like they have in the beginning of The Ice Storm when they're talking about Deep Throat. Yet it's a Hollywood movie. It's directed by an established director. Right. Um, Do you have some favorite scenes? Oh, golly. The conversations between the father and the son... Rodney. He was the handsome, goes to Harvard, and he's dating the girl from the wrong side of the tracks, or at least that's what his father thinks. And his father tells him, you've got a dumper, and actually makes him call her on the phone. That's a horrible, terrible thing for a grown-ass man to do, not just to his son, but some poor girl that he doesn't know. There were two scenes with the two of them, and uh, the second one ended with him electing to take a job with his father. And of course, that all is upended when he's killed in the war, and the dad makes up with her. I found the dynamic of the poor family, that being Arthur, is it Arthur Kennedy? Those are the Cross families. He's Lucas Cross and Hope playing is Selena. At first I was like, oh, I get it. They're the poor family, whatever. But then it turns out there's some real issues there. It's the scene where she's changing clothes and he's leering at her. And I'm like, wait, are they implying that he's sexually abusive? And no, they didn't have to imply that later on. They just almost, I was shocked. I'll tell you, though, when Allison and Norman returned from their swim at the lake, 
you've got the old gossipy bitty who is told everybody in town, every mom in town, that the two of them were seen skinny dipping, but they weren't because she mistook them for the other couple. Shortly at the end of that scene, there's a suicide. Selena Cross's mother yeah. who heard what was going on between her husband and Selena. Well, I certainly agree that the rape and the murder scenes are very strong and the suicide scene. Those are some of the high points when it comes to emotionality. I think all of the Russ Tamlin scenes work well. I also like the opening scenes where the music plays and we see the town in incredibly nostalgic terms. The music was sort of iconic for the time. You could hear the instrumental play on the radio for a long time. Director was Mark Robinson, and you said you're not familiar with him. So I can't say you have a favorite film of his, but what do you think of his directing here? It's fine. It's adequate. You mentioned when we were talking about the ice storm, this is a little bit different because it's a lot of static shots. You sounded like you were talking about Kubrick. This is not Kubrick. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if this director did a lot of television work and maybe stage work. But then again, I'm thinking from somebody who watches a lot of movies from the 70s through the 2000s rather than somebody who is into movies from the 50s. Unless you're talking about... There is a different style. The editing styles and directing styles really changed in the late 60s and 70s, especially starting with films like Bonnie and Clyde. Yes. I think I agree with you. He gets the job done. It's very good, but you're right. He's no Orson Welles, though he started out as an editor for Orson Welles and Val Mm -hmm. Luton. He then made a few films for Luton before finally crossing over from B-films to more prestige studio films like Champion and Bright Victory, The Bridges of Toko Re, Von Ryan's Express, and then, oh, Valley of the Dolls. And if you've never seen that, talk about <laughs> Kitchen Camp. <laughs> I've uh, always wanted to see it. Oh, it's so bad it. that you can't look away. It just can't look away. But Robson was not a great filmmaker, but a very entertaining one. He was what you might call a solid and strong studio director. I think he's very good with the actress here especially since so many of them were relatively new to films, the younger ones. Film looks great, though, static, has a good sense of time and place in spite of the fact that it's filled with anachronisms. I want to hear about that. I I wasn't what that was. And I think I agree with you. At two hours and 37 minutes, I have to say I was never bored. Mm -hmm. So it's Payton Place is a solid example of what studio prestige films were like at the time, for better and for worse. And also a great example of seeing how the Hates Code was slowly coming down. You might even say it was a Marvel movie of its day, for Hmm. (laughs) better and worse. Mm -hmm. Now, the screenplay is John Michael Hayes, and how did you feel about that? I really thought this was great. I don't know how to sound like I'm praising a screenplay without sounding like a, a noob or something. It was probably one of the best screenplays I've heard, like, in the 50s. There's no question. Well, this is like seven years earlier, but if if you talk about All About Eve, that's a brilliant script. It's a simple story, but you've got your one-liners, and really that whole movie is just people talking in rooms and cars. It's so much fun watching all the backbiting and how all these people are just rotating around the feud between these two women. But here, you don't have a lot of that snap to it. 
it's the story that really draws you. It's the soap opera element of this film. And it did it really, really well. And there has to be a film like this that I can use an exa- as an example, something more recent. But I honestly can't think of one because I think well, these types of stories nowadays are told on streaming services. You don't really see them in the movie theater anymore. Mm-hmm. They're really mainly on television of all kinds. I agree with you that it's a story that drives it. I think the characters work very well. The dialogue doesn't snap, but it's fine. John Michael Hayes started out writing radio plays. When he got to films, he worked on glossy prestige melodramas like Torch Song and Butterfield 8, The Carpetbaggers, and Love is Gone. So in some ways, he probably was the perfect person to have adapted Baden plays. He had a lot of practice for these kind of films. Oh, Um, yeah. But he has done some stronger work, especially for four Alfred Hitchcock films. To Catch a Thief, The Trouble with Harry, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and probably the best film he ever wrote, We're a Window. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. We covered it on Pop Art recently. Yes. A short film about love, which both are about voyeurs. Perhaps what is most interesting aspect here is how it got past the Hayes Goat. Mm-hmm. And first, we have to talk about the context of the time. The censorship board was in a tough position. Television was already stealing the audience, and men returning home from the war had started families and couldn't go out to the movie as much. And Europe was making movies that were much more honest about sex than the U.S. And if you add to this that some filmmakers were releasing films without approval by the Hays Code, such as The Moon is Blue and The Man with the Golden Arm, they knew there was trouble on the rise. So they did have to find a way to support the making of more adult films in a last-ditch effort to keep their relevance. But they demanded a lot of changes to the story. Hayes softened the characters, made them more likable. Norman Page is more Norman Bates in the novel. (laughs) And they removed all suggestions of incest here with his mother. Hayes changed an abortion to a miscarriage. And there are actually two abortions in the book. The other one being Betty Anderson, who was Rodney's girlfriend, who was nothing but a gold digger in the book. But the father got her to have an abortion by saying, if you don't, I'll follow your father who works at the factory. The oh. doctor was a drinker and racist. Selena was raped by her father in the book. Stepfather. Yeah, I was yeah. going to ask about that. Oh, that's icky. You know, though, if you took this story and you just kind of remade it 2023, it wouldn't work. And I hate to use the word charming, but I feel like a part of me knows this whole time that this is 1941. It works, but if you were to make a movie where a, a girl is raped by her stepfather and she has to get an abortion, I feel like I wouldn't even blink. But watching it in this context, watching Leave it to Beaver turn into, you know, what it turns into, I'm not going to say John Waters, that is really interesting. Well, they also made changes to the war through line and the ending. In the book, Rodney doesn't marry Betty. She Mm. is bought off by his father, and he never serves in the war because his father pulls a lot of strings to get him a deferment. Instead, Rodney dies in a car accident while being sexually distracted by a young woman in his company. Oh, my God. I know. Now you know why the small town Grace Metellius came from. Never wanted to have anything to do with her again. Norman serves but has a mental breakdown and gets a medical discharge and his mother covers this up so people will believe he's a war hero. Selena's boyfriend Ted keeps putting off going to the service using student deferments, much to Selena's disgust. Also, Ted abandons Selena during the trial in the book. Mm. So mm. lots of changes, lots of changes. 
I do think there are two characters who are coded as gay. You literally took the words out of my mouth. When you brought that up earlier, I wasn't sure who you were talking about. Well, the first is Norman. Yeah, that's what I thought. He doesn't really fit in. He has an overbearing mother and an absent father. He's uncomfortable around women and even calls himself a sissy. He's sort of like the gay best friend. Yeah. The other other is the teacher, Elsie Thornton, who's still single after all these years. And I don't think it's difficult to suspect that why Marion Partridge is against making her principal is because she suspects something. Oh, Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. She calls her a hypochondriac. And yeah, I, didn't I don't even... think in the book you would find this. I just think in the movie it feels that way. And that's how sometimes you have gay characters in movies of this period that even the writers didn't really purposely make gay, but they're just that's how they're coming across. I'm on the fence about Norman, but I definitely buy Mrs. Thornton. Alfred Hitchcock did it a lot. In a TV interview, Grace Metellius called it a nice picture. However, she really hated it because of the changes and how much was left out. She was hired to be a story consultant, but this was for publicity purposes only. The producer, Jerry Wald, was never going to allow her to be involved. She said, quote, I regarded the men who made pain place as workers in a gigantic flesh factory, and they looked upon me as a nut who should go back to the farm, unquote. Okay. Oh, okay. I do think these missions and changes do affect the quality of the screenplay in one way. And other critics have said the same thing. When you omit so much of the book like they do here, when everybody says Peyton Place is this awful place, I'm coming to going, well, it doesn't really seem that bad. But it is a really terrible place in the book. Terrible people? or Because they show far shots well, of it, established shots. It's supposed to be a picture postcard place until you find out there's all this adultery and incest okay. and abortions going on. So I'm not sure it earns the name of fame place, which has become synonymous with towns like this. It became a word on its own, like Main Street and Babbitt and Elmer Gantry. Mm-hmm. It got mixed reviews, but there is an irony here because the critics hated the book. It was not well received by the critics, though so it was a huge, huge bestseller. And then the movie critics derided the movie for leaving so much out of the book. So it's like Woody Allen. The food here is terrible and such small portions. <laughs> the book is terrible and the movie leaves so much of the book out. That's interesting. I thought the critics would have loved some of this. But did it get was, a lot of good reviews and it, a lot of Oscar nominations. It was sort of the reverse of The Ice Storm, which got great reviews and flopped. Pain Place got mixed reviews and made a fortune. Of course, a lot of its financial success is attributed by some to what was going on in Lana Turner's life. Her involvement with an abusive gangster and her daughter killing the gangster while he was attacking Turner. What? <laughs> Yeah, Joey Stepanato was a huge scandal, and the press coverage boosted ticket sales for Payton Place by 32% in April 1958. Wow! Oh, that's fascinating. I have never seen Lana Turner in a movie, unless you count L.A. Confidential. I had no idea what she looked like. And in fact, when I first started watching this, I had to grab the phone and look up IMDb to make sure. I thought she was Allison. I didn't realize that Lana Turner is a bit older. Yeah, she was quite good. Well, this is probably Lana Turner's best performance, but actually that's a low bar for me because she's not Uh really a very good actress, but I think she is actually rather good here. What kind of movies was she in when she was younger? Well, when she was younger and an ingenue, she would be in things like Andy Harding movies. She actually played a young woman who was raped and killed. The wrong person is accused of killing her. 
It was one of Warner Brothers ripped from the headlines. She's known for the postman always rings twice. She okay. was called the sweater girl because okay. she always wore sweaters, which showed off her greatest yeah. assets. <laughs> so she her, was uh, yeah. played sexy roles and femme fatales, people like this. I think Mildred Dunnick and Russ Tamblin did the strongest performances for me. I think Mildred Dunnick is just great here, but it's consistently well acted. And you know what's so interesting? That's like 5% of the movie. That little storyline that she's going to be that guy from out of town, Mr. Rossi. He's going to come in and you're, what, you're like, that Mr. Rossi, I hate him already. I'll be darned that poor lady didn't get that job. And then I'm all of a sudden, I'm like, Sean, why do you care? You're 10 minutes into this I movie. I think Lee Phillips, who played Michael Rossi, is probably the weak point yeah. here. He never really went on to anything else. And I have to be honest, there's something about his voice that annoys and distracts me. I didn't like him either. I, you mentioned the performances that were good. I'll be honest. I think that Nellie, the maid who commits suicide, oh, yeah. I yeah. thought she was quite good. She um, is. You know, it was something that could have been really overplayed, like uh, Mr. Kennedy did with her husband. I thought that was a little bit too... He just acted too drunk. I'm sorry. I know that that's a generalization. <laughs> I know what you mean. He's very method. He's very of that period. Everybody thinks method is very subtle. Method is not subtle. Yeah. Method is the opposite of subtle. Like the ice storm, we do have to talk about the cinematography and the music. Mm-hmm. Cinematography was by William C. Mailer, and the music was by Franz Waxman. Music? What music? I'm going to say something really horrible right now. It seems to me that every movie, every Hollywood movie in the 1950s had the same music. <laughs> I know they didn't, with a few exceptions. I don't remember what that was. Cinematography, I'm fairly ambivalent about it because I felt that it was a very static movie. I don't think it was technically technicolor, but to me that's how, or cinemascope. Even though I kind of like the look of those movies sometimes, I was ambivalent about the cinematography. I like both. I understand what you mean about the cinematography, but it is a very beautiful movie to like at. Mailer was a major studio cinematographer at the time. He worked on both low-budget films like Too Late for Tears and bigger projects like The Diary of Van Frank, and I think he died while filming The Greatest Story Ever Told. And then Waxman, I like very much. The theme for Peyton Place, as I said, almost became iconic. I remember hearing it on the radio a lot. It's a nice nostalgic wistfulness to it. The movie as a whole, I think you could say, is very much, I may have said this before, an example of the prestige picture from the studios. Not necessarily the best example, but one of those. Okay. When you say prestige, are you saying something like Oppenheimer now? Yes. Okay. Big budget, possibly made to get Oscar nominations. But there were different categories. There were the huge prestige pictures. There were the medium-sized movies. And then there were the B films. Mm -hmm. The best films of the period are the medium to the B films. Prestige pictures... We don't really hold them as in high regard, even as we do like the film noir B pictures or the psychological westerns or some of those horror movies. The medium size like Double Indignity and the Maltese Falcon and All About Eve that we really remember today. 
Waxman is one of the Hollywood great composers. He was a German-born Jewish composer. He left the country after being beaten by Nazi sympathizers. The movie Rebecca is what made his name. Mm. He's also known for Bride of Frankenstein, Sunset Boulevard, Place in the Sun, The Nun Story. He received 12 Academy Award nominations, won two Oscars in consecutive years for Sunset Boulevard and A Place in the Sun. And he was responsible for over 150 film scores. In the New York Times at the time, Bosley Crowther wrote, quote, there is no sense of massive corruption here, unquote. But he did like the film overall, praising Hope Lang's, quote, gentle and sensitive performance and finding uh, Lloyd Nolan, quote, excellent. Variety wrote that the film was, quote, impressively acted by an excellent cast, unquote, but noted that, quote, in leaning backwards not to offend, Wald and Hayes have gone acrobatic. On the screen is not the unpleasant secret little town against which Grace Metellius set her story. TV Guide wrote, this is the kind of hypersensitive trash that gives melodrama a bad name, cynically tempering its naughty bits with smug moralizing. Wait, oh my God. (laughs) No, they did not like it. The fact that the film won an A rating from the Catholic Legion of Decency, meaning it was deemed acceptable to all, is a dead giveaway, unquote. However, it should be noted that it actually received an A3 rating from the Catholic Legion, meaning it was only acceptable for adult audiences. So he got that wrong. Hmm. There's a lot of movies like this. You don't understand how somebody could not like it. Um, Last week we were talking about The Ring. Siskel liked it, but Ebert hated it. And like that, no one quite understands how he could have hated it as much as he did. I haven't heard your episode yet. I don't think you even dropped it yet because I ran out of podcasts. I'm working on that now. So I've done it too, where I've seen a movie and people don't understand why I dislike it so much. And I'm not sure I can always explain that here's some more information about the film mm-hmm. it cost somewhere around 2.2 million to make and made 26.5 million at the box office nice very good it was the second highest grossing film released in the united states in 1957 the film was nominated for nine academy awards including okay. best picture cinematography adapted screenplay director five acting nominees oh yes i want to hear what these are for lana turner supporting for arthur kennedy and russ tamblin and supporting for hope lang it was the year of the bridge over the river kwai the three faces of eve and sayonara the movie won none of its awards tying the record set by little foxes for most nominations with no wins the record was later broken by the color purple and the turning point both with 11 nominations and no wins Only eight other films have received five acting nominations. There was a sequel, Return to Peyton Place, and a television series, the latter of which launched the careers of Mia Farrow and Ryan O'Neill. And there were other sequels as well. David Lynch and Mark Frost viewed this film to guide their creation of Twin Peaks. I think it also was an influence on Blue Velvet. It was the film debut of Lee Phillips and Diana Varsi. Now, there's one major plot issue. The defense attorney calls Connie to the witness stand while the prosecution is still presenting its case. The defense cannot call witnesses until the prosecution is rested. I was watching it this time and it went, wait a minute, that's that's not how it works. <laughs> now we get to the anachronisms. 
basically what they did is even though it takes place in 41 and 43, they just left everything kind of 1957-ish. Mike Rossi and Dr. Swain are driving in a car and they come to a stop sign. The sign is red. All stop signs were yellow at the time and stop signs were not changed to red until the mid-1950s. Allison plays classical music on an LP 31 and a third record changer. <laughs> the LP was not developed until 1949. And it the wasn't record, that loud when it was developed either. <laughs> the record player is playing Johnny Mercer's song Dream during the Make Out Party, which takes place in 1941, but Dream was not written and published until 1944. And all the women's clothes and hairstyles are from the 1950s, yeah. not the early 40s. Closing out, I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. All right. I chose two. Great. Two so completely different films that are kind of about the same things, especially for The Ice Storm. I'll start with comedy, a film that I saw in the theater, and I love it dearly. I haven't seen it for a very long time, called Parenthood. Right. There are a number of relationships in this movie, just like in both of the movies. That, uh, but really, the first thing that, <laughs> that came to mind is, when The Ice Storm is over, the sequel is going to be hereditary. There's stuff in that movie. This is really effed up. I've chosen four movies, and we've mentioned one. In 2008, Sam Mendes gave us Revolutionary Road mm, from the mm. novel of the same name, set in the 1950s and follows the lives of the Wheelers and their lives in the suburbs of Connecticut. King's Road from 1942 is one of the first films that looked at small towns through a psychiatric lens. It follows mm. the lives of a group of young people as they grow up in King's Row at the turn of the century. It stars Ronald Reagan in what he considers his favorite role, and it probably is his best performance. And it also has his favorite line, where's the rest of me? Mm. And if you really want something over the top, The Damned is a 1969 drama directed by Lucino Visconti and follows a family called the Essenbachs as they tie their fortunes to the rise of the Nazi party. It is loosely based on the real-life family, the Krupps. And from some real nostalgia, and if you want to have fun, any of the Carol Burnett shows that has their soap opera satire as the stomach turns <laughs> is worth watching, even after all these years. And they can still, unless it laughs. <laughs> well, what is next? What should we be expecting from you? My friends, I call him, I don't know, my podcast boyfriend or my podcast partner. He lives in Dallas. We have two podcasts that are available. If you like Columbo, the Columbo Confab podcast, it's very popular. There's like 70-something episodes because there's only 69 Columbo episodes you can do. There's a finite number. I so once they were done making Columbo in the 70s, the same folks went on. They did Ellery Queen. That didn't last long, unfortunately. And then they did Murder, She Wrote. So Steve and I, we started a Murder, She Wrote podcast. It's been going on for about 75 episodes. Yeah, we recorded the 75th. If you like Murder, She Wrote, and you don't mind pre-show banter, we do a lot of that. I also host a podcast called The Best Picture Podcast, where my friend Eric and I pick a year at random, and then we spend the next five-plus episodes talking about a particular movie that was nominated for Best Picture that year. We just finished 2005, which is the year that Crash won. For me, I'll list my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kastner screenplay consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. 
I've published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Read. The previous episode was my annual Halloween episode with my annual Halloween guest, teacher by day, horror aficionado by night, Lisa Leahy, where we discussed The Ring and Curse of the Demon, two films in which an object passed from one person to another gives the receiver a certain amount of time to live. The next episode will be with writer Jennifer Van, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, Sijol, S-I-J-L-L, where we are going to talk Parasite and La Ceremonie, two films about servants you wouldn't want to turn your backs on. So once again, thank you, Sean, for being a guest on my show. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me.